everyone. This is the Crucial Talks Podcast. I'm your host, Mike. I hope last week went well for you and this week will be even better. Every day it seems like the podcast is gaining a little bit of momentum, but it'd be great to continue to expand our community. So please share the podcast with others. If you get a chance, please rate it and review it. So let's get started. I know the title of this episode, Roles and Risks, R100 and R101, makes it sound like a class an undergraduate student would take, like English 101 and Chemistry 101. But it's not. The R-100 and R-101 were two airships constructed in the late 1920s. Back in those days, airships were a sign of prestige, and it was trying to be decided whether or not airships could be made safe for commercial travel. During the early 1900s, the majestic lighter-than-air dirigibles ruled the skies over Europe. While the airplane of the 1920s remained a work in progress, the airship was viewed as a sophisticated and efficient mode of air travel. The R-100 and R-101 projects were approved in 1924, and it was anticipated that R-101 would be operational in 1926. However, the design phase of the project continued into 1927. This added costs and pressure from the press and from Parliament. Although construction of both started in 1927, and their names make it sound like they were sister ships, the two airships could not have been more different. R-100 was built by a private company on a fixed-price contract, while R-101 was built by the government. The two airships were basically in competition with each other, one being a government-built airship and the other being built by private industry. As you can imagine, there was quite a bit of pressure and competition that existed between the two projects. The R-100 was built with well-known principles by a team of experienced airship builders. It successfully flew a round trip from England to Montreal, Canada in 1930. The R-101 and the focus of this episode was supposed to be a bit experimental, pushing the limits of technology at the time. In fact, they tried implementing a number of new designs and did so simultaneously. This increased the risk involved with building the airship. It started flying in 1929. In October of 1929, the 732-foot R-101 was taken out of its shed in Cardington to undergo preliminary testing in preparation for its maiden flight to India. Immediately it became apparent that the lighter-than-air ship wasn't all that light. When the R-101 was first tested, they discovered the hard way that they had overbuilt it and it was much heavier than they'd planned. It didn't have near the spare lift that they wanted or needed for the mission. So the R-101 was filled with gas, allowing for lift and trim trials and it had much less lift and was found to be tail-heavy. The R-101 was then flown through a number of test runs and even weathered gusts of almost 90 miles per hour while it was tied up. What they found was that after being exposed to that wind, the gas bags were moving around inside the framing, causing chafing and leaks in the gas bags. They also found during the testing that the aircraft was sluggish and hard to handle. During the same period of time, while they were having problems in the, in the testing cycles, the R-101 was shown to a number of people. Now think about this. Between mid-October and the end of November, so roughly six weeks, it was shown to over one million people. Keep this in mind as you go through the story. Ask yourself if you have ever done anything or made any decisions because of other people, because of the people were watching, because of the pressures of these people watching. And there were a lot of people watching, the public, the press, people within the government, the air ministry director, the crew. And one of those crew members was the first officer of the R-101. 
and the first officer had written in his journal that, quote, all these window dressing stunts and joyrides before she has got an airworthiness certificate are quite wrong, but there is no one who has got the guts to put their foot down. And this journal entry is quite telling. It's telling that this first officer recognized there was a mismatch of accountability, that the professional level accountability he expected from the role of the crew and the project managers and the engineers and people designing and building this airship were conflicting with all the other pressures and accountability at the political level. And these pressures continued as the R-101 continued to be tested and flown. After six flights, another flight was scheduled where they would bring 100 passengers aboard, another show-and-tell. However, the R-101 lacked enough lift to fly, and a number of proposals were developed to increase lift, including adding an additional gas bag and adding additional length to the airship. To give the R-101 the required lift needed to journey to India, they opted for a radical solution. They cut the ship in half, adding an extra bay and an additional gas bag, making the world's longest airship even longer. It was nearly 800 feet long. When you have something that's that long, the pressures on one end of the ship can be very different from the other end of the ship. So the work on the R-101 was expected to begin in mid-1930, and this work was to increase the amount of weight R-101 could carry, but that wasn't their only issue. In January of 1930, the fabric on top of the airship was found to be deteriorating and the strength of the covering was compromised. For example, one test they did found that the fabric was not supposed to break until it had undergone 700 pounds per foot of strain. But that test showed it broke at 85 pounds. So 700 pounds versus 85 pounds on a relatively new ship. On June 29th of 1930, the extension of R-101 to add an additional gas bag started. In July of 1930, an inspector, an airworthiness inspector, wrote a letter directly to the director of aeronautical inspection. He even jumped the chain of command to get this letter out. The R-101 had been operating under a temporary permit. This inspector was concerned about extending the temporary permit or giving it an actual airworthiness certificate. Basically, this is what he wanted to do. He wanted to revoke the authorization of R-101 to fly. Now, there was some discussion about this, but it wasn't taken any further. The R-101 was allowed to continue to fly. Political pressure over the ship's maiden flight to India began to mount. The decision to take the R-101 to India was singularly driven by one man, and that was the first Air Lord, Lord Thompson. And he was the principal advocate and the guy whose prestige was on the line for the success of this program. This was a government project, government funded, government controlled. When the air minister said, let's go, they went. The extended version of the R-101 came out sometime around September 26, 1930, and had a 17-hour flight in smooth weather conditions on October 1st. Now, October 1st of 1930 is only a few days before it was supposed to make a very long trip to India with the air minister aboard. After the flight, the captain addressed many of the concerns that had existed by noting these things, that the gas valves had no leaks, the gas bags didn't move much, and the outer cover also had a little movement. It seemed to indicate that all the problems were alleviated. Now, it is notable that the captain was not only responsible for the safety of the airship, but was also the project manager. And as you can see, there's confliction there. 
there's going to be competing values, competing accountabilities that this captain is going to have to deal with. And start thinking to yourself, do you think the captain's perspective was skewed at all? I'm not saying the captain lied. I'm not saying anything like that. But what I'm saying is that perception is driven by the roles we play. And we can socially construct what's going on around us. I've talked before about how our identities and how our roles help us make sense of the world around us. Do you think this captain could have been impacted by the different roles he was playing? He was making sense of the world around him based on these roles. So do you think it impacted how he perceived how the aircraft was actually flying, how it was able to do its job, how it was able to accomplish its mission of safe flight. So after that flight, on October 1st, 1930, of 17 hours in smooth air, what they had to do was decide if they would make the long-distant flight to India, and they felt some pressure to do so. Crew members and other stakeholders met to discuss the flight. They talked about the need of a full-speed flight in adverse conditions before undertaking such a long flight. They talked about how that was an important step. However, the decision was made that they would conduct the flight, but should not fly at top speed on the way to India because they were unsure if it would create any other problems. There had been considerable pressure by the air minister, Lord Thompson, to get the R-101 operational, to get him to India and back. However, on October 2nd, there was a note from him that stated, You mustn't allow my natural impatience or anxiety to start to influence you in any way. You must use your considered judgment. So in this statement, Lord Thompson's basically saying, Hey, look, I know I put a lot of pressure on you all. I know that we've talked about this. I know I have indicated my need to get to India and for the R101 to be operational. However, forget about all that and use your good judgment. Remember that. Remember this statement. Because it's something we're going to refer to when we talk about a couple of takeaways from this story. So let's move on to October 4th, 1930. The day that the R-101 departs for India. So it leaves at around 6.30 in the evening. At about 8 p.m., the R-101 passes over London in rain. And they sent a message that all was well. At about 11.30 p.m., the R-101 crossed the French coast and at midnight, a message was sent stating that after an excellent supper, our distinguished passengers smoked a final cigar, and having sighted the French coast, have now gone to bed to rest after the excitement of their leave takings. The crew have settled down to their watchkeeping routine. So that was at midnight. At about 2 a.m., the R101 began a nose-down descent, which probably started because of fabric, the stuff we talked about earlier, on the front part of the ship separated. So it began to take on water and the nose began to dip. Now ballast was released and action was taken to try to alleviate the nose down condition and resulting dive. However, it continued to descend. Remember the other tests? They had already had problems controlling the aircraft because it, it felt sluggish because it didn't respond effectively to control inputs. So the R101 continued to descend and they took action to minimize the impact. It was going to hit the ground. So the R101 ended up striking the ground at a relatively low speed with very little impact. The grounding of the R101 was minimal and definitely survivable. And in fact, did so little damage that the people that were, were in their berthings or on the, the bridge probably didn't feel much when it actually hit the ground. However, after it struck the ground, one of the engines was pushed up into the hull. And they believe that sparks then ignited the gas that allowed the airship to float. 
If you have ever seen the recording of the Hindenburg disaster, which happened about seven years later, you can imagine how quickly the fire spread. This turned a, a survivable impact with the ground into an unsurvivable inferno. 48 of the 54 aboard were killed. From this story, I'd like us to discuss two main takeaways. The first is our roles as professionals, and the second is our roles as leaders. To discuss this first takeaway, we're going to look at two different types of accountability that we see in this story, professional and political. Now, accountability is a buzzword we use. The concept of accountability can sometimes be a little underdeveloped in organizations and can be misunderstood. But accountability is important because it's how we end up dealing with the expectations placed on us and the groups we belong to. The capacity to manage expectations is rooted in our ability to use accountability appropriately, the roles that we play, and the importance of the roles at the time we are facing a decision is what will ultimately drive what type of accountability we are using in our decision-making process. Let me make that a little more simple to understand. We can be driven to make decisions based on our role as a professional in our organizations or line of work. We can also be driven by the external factors and pressures placed on us. So let's go back to the R101 story and the captain. The captain had a whole bunch of different roles he had to play in this story. He was responsible for the completion of the airship. He was responsible for operating the airship. He was responsible for media relations. He was responsible for safety. He was responsible for answering to Parliament and the people above him in the chain of command. Think about those different roles and how each one could play into the decisions being made. Not only the decisions being made, but the perception of what is going on with the project, of what's going on around the world that surrounds the captain, how he is perceiving things, how his mind is working to make sense of the world around him. Think about all of the different roles and how they're going to impact decisions that are being made. These roles can clearly conflict with each other. Now, we all have conflicting roles in our lives. We all play different roles as a family member, as a team member, as a supervisor, as a manager, as a worker. We have a ton of conflicting roles. So we need to discuss a little bit about what drives which role is going to be important at the time. And the key to this is understanding that how we perceive what's going on around us and how those things fit with the different roles is what makes a role important and what puts it in maybe the hierarchy of ourselves what makes it more important than another role? And in this case, if the captain is perceiving these things happening as more important to one role than another, he's going to be using that role to make his decisions. And through this story, we can see how those decisions are being made based on those conflicting roles and how maybe the political importance of this was affecting the decisions and the perception on what's going on with the world around the captain. Now let's talk about the air minister, Lord Thompson. What roles was he playing? How did he affect the roles of others like the captain? And this is the second key takeaway for leaders. Lord Thompson, a few days before they were to leave for India, warned others not to allow his impatience to influence them. This is kind of like a CEO walking into a meeting where he wants to get information, telling people his thoughts, and then asking everyone what they think, and to not be influenced by what he thinks. Is that truly a way we can do business in our meetings when we're trying to get true feedback, where we're trying to get people to communicate with us honestly? If we go in there and we say something like that, 
that is going to affect the roles that people play and how they are going to perceive and make sense of what's going on around them. And that's what Lord Thompson had been doing this whole time. One small statement like that isn't going to overcome the importance and the accountability and the salience placed on these different roles that the captain had to play. If we truly want people to act based on their roles as professionals and increase the chance for a free flow of information, we need to think about how what we do, not only what we say, but what we do, impacts their interpretation of the expectations of the roles they're responsible for playing. There was considerable pressure to make the flight to India. There was considerable media pressure. There was considerable political pressure, and all of these pressures can squeeze out certain types of accountability that are fed by the roles we play. In the case of the captain, the professional role of being responsible for the airship and for safety are all there. They're still there inside of them. But what are the chances of those roles being squeezed out by the pressures of external stakeholders and internal professional pride because they were also in competition with the R-100? In closing, we can learn a lot from the risks and roles associated with the R-101 airship disaster. We can think about how the different pressures we deal with on a day-to-day, on a minute-by-minute basis, impact the roles we play and how we make decisions. We can also think about the pressures we might create in our own groups and how these pressures have an impact on others. We should be aware of our behaviors and our statements and how those things impact what other people are doing. They are going to make sense of their worlds, and they are going to make decisions based on those roles. So think about how we interact with others. Think about how those interactions impact others' roles. And as always, thank you for listening. Thank you for helping to create a community of practitioners that can positively impact how we all behave. If you'd like more information, please feel free to visit CrucialTalks.com and make contact with me. If you can, please subscribe, share, and rate the podcast. Hope you have a great week, and remember, if we want to understand behavior, we need to understand what drives people.